We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. One guest on this Memorial Day show, uh, a day obviously to remember and honor those that fought and died uh, for freedom. Uh, The one guest, Brian Simmons, will be on the show. Who's Brian Simmons? He's the North Carolina broadcast analyst for the Tar Heels radio network. He's been doing games since 2016. He played at North Carolina. He had a 10-year NFL career, was a scout in Jacksonville after his playing career uh, before becoming a broadcaster, and he called Sam Howell's games in Chapel Hill. So 20 or so minutes with Brian Simmons on what he thinks Washington has in Sam Howell coming up uh, in the next segment. Uh, the show today is presented by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.com or MyBookie.ag. Use my promo code KevinDC for a chance uh, at a first deposit bonus of up to $1,000. You have to use my promo code KevinDC to get it if you want to bet. The NBA's Eastern Conference Game 7 tonight in Boston. Go to my bookie. Uh, right now, the Celtics are seven and a half point favorites in Game 7. Much more coming up on that and Game 6 on Saturday night on the show later on uh, in the show. However, um, getting started is simple. You just sign up today at my bookie. Use my promo code KevinDC. Uh, you've got a chance at boosted odds uh, using the MyBookie money bag. And as mentioned, you can secure a first deposit bonus of up to $1,000. Bet anything, anytime, anywhere with MyBookie. Yeah, game six on Saturday night. Wow, that was insane. Uh, cannot wait for the game tonight. More on that coming up at the end of the show. I did get a chance, by the way, before the show this morning to get caught up Uh, It was nice uh, having kind of the day off from radio. I got, uh, I don't know how many times um, you guys do this, but you, you know, take that two or three hours just to get totally organized and create and update your lists of the things that you uh, have to do and have to accomplish. Uh, At least when you know the things uh, you want to get done and you want to accomplish, you've got a better chance, I think, of actually getting it done. But I got super organized uh, this morning uh, in my studio here by myself with coffee and a bagel. And uh, I read through and got caught up on several of the Apple reviews in particular, several of your tweets and emails. And there were a couple uh, that I picked out that I wanted to read. And this one... Uh, comes from Chuck C. Chuck C. wrote, Scott McLuhan, and for those of you who don't know, Scott McLuhan was on Friday's show. Scott McLuhan was great. Very high on Washington's draft. Um, We've had Scott McLuhan on, I think, three out of the last four years after the draft. Uh, So if you missed Scott McLuhan, you can go back and listen to that show uh, from Friday. But uh, Chuck C. writes, Scott McLuhan is always a really good guest on your show. But I'm curious as to why you think he's credible. In the first two rounds of the 2016 draft, he picked Josh Doxson and Sua Cravens, two guys that were covered in character issues. Scott seems like a really nice guy, but the fact that he loves this recent Washington draft means little to me. But I guess he gave you a headline with Rodriguez, 
So that's what you were looking for. Uh, so um, Chuck was referring, by the way, to Chris Rodriguez. Scott McLuhan called Chris Rodriguez the steal of the draft. He had a second-round grade on Rodriguez. Uh, and you can go back and listen to what he said about Chris Rodriguez, again, from the show on Friday. Um so, uh, first of all, by the way, let me just remind everybody, you can rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that's a huge boost for us if you do it. Following us is a big deal as well. You can do that on Apple and Spotify and any other platform that allows you to follow us. And I appreciate those of you that have done it. Um, but uh, on Chuck's um, note, for starters, just as an FYI, I'm never really expecting a headline from guests. Like, it's not like I went into that interview with Scott McLuhan expecting him to make a headline about Chris Rodriguez. Now, when I heard it, I knew that it would be, I don't know if that was a headline necessarily, but a lot of you reached out and said, whoa, about Chris Rodriguez. Um, But I'm never really expecting a headline necessarily from guests. It's not that I am um, not aware, it's not that I'm not aware that certain questions or certain conversations with certain guests may have uh, an increased probability of a headline comment, but it's not really the goal necessarily of any interview. Guests come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, I guess. You know, they're the guests, by the way, that you have on the show where it's really an interview, primarily like in the true sense of an interview where, you know, you're asking the questions and you're letting them answer the questions because they're the expert, they've got the information, or they've got an opinion that you want to hear and you know that you want your listeners to hear. Other guests, and that's a lot of them that come on um, the show, are there more for conversation, almost like having a co-host on for a segment or two because you know that that particular person is good in that sort of conversational talking about whatever the topic is, and it makes just for better listening. Um, There are plenty of guests that I have on the show that I know, all due respect intended, don't know any more about whatever the subject, you know, is than I do or you do. But it's just better to have more of a conversation about that subject um, with somebody else uh, rather than like a true Q&A. Uh, but, you know, um, on the comment of looking for a headline, not much really anymore. And I don't know that I've ever really looked for headlines. Sometimes you're in the midst of an interview and you know that this person's willing to give you more than you thought going into it so you can prompt that. And you are thinking, man, I might be able to get something really interesting or provocative out of this person. But the truth is the benefit in today's day and age of what you get out of somebody saying something that generates, you know, a headline in air quotes, uh, it's not that significant, really. Like it's a headline for like a minute and then it's gone and barely remembered. I mean, it's just the way things are now. I mean, with social media, everybody's out there trying to create, like I'm talking about more like on the reporter side, everybody understands there's a short shelf life to having a story or having something. Um, And in many cases, like even if you've got something really big, and I'm talking about more on the reporting, uh, the reporter side, after the fact, we as like the consumers of that, you know, it's 50-50 as to whether or not we can actually name the place that had it first or the person that had it first. But on the other part of Chuck's um, note, Scott McLuhan, uh, Scott McLuhan, Chuck, was a very highly respected talent evaluator in this league and still is. There are still several teams paying Scott, you know, in his consulting business to evaluate college talent. You know, every scout, GM, uh, talent evaluator, they get it wrong more often than they get it right. I mean, we've talked about, you know, from a draft standpoint, like a good hit rate three years down the road is to have a third of the draft choices contributing, not even at a super high level, but just still on a roster and playing. You know, McLuhan's got a long list 
of great NFL players. Frank Gore, Patrick Willis, Richard Sherman. Um, uh, in Seattle, Bobby Wagner, uh, Earl Thomas, Russell Wilson. Um, in San Francisco, uh, in addition to Gore and Willis, you know, guys like Vernon Davis, uh, Joe Staley, Brandon Sheriff here. He's got a long list of successful NFL players. Now, the last year here, or the last true year here with him, because 2017 got a little bit sideways, um, yeah, Doxson and Cravens uh, were total busts in the first and second round, and that's a tough draft. Cravens in particular, you know, he had issues at USC that should have been flagged. Doxson didn't have any obvious issues at TCU, but he clearly did not love football and didn't want to be away from home as a young person. I know that sounds nuts, but it's true. Um, He was not, as Scott would say or call, a football player. He was not. Um, He was talented. Uh, But yeah, 2016 was his second year here, and it was probably the beginning of the end to a certain degree. You know, I'm not sure that Bruce Allen ever loved the Scott McLuhan decision and hire, even though he was intimately involved in it. Remember, the hiring of Scott McLuhan was a hire that came fresh off the heels of Bruce's infamous winning off the field comment at the end of of the 2014 season, which was a nightmare year. You know, Bruce suggesting that the organization was winning off the field uh, dropped like a lead weight. You know, it was a you-know-what in the punch bowl. You know, just a total lack of of self-awareness of where the fan base was at the time. He and Dan were so clueless back then as to the mounting sort of disgust and and worse than that, the apathy that was building. They didn't have a clue how despised they were by the fan base. Uh, and what a poor choice of words in that description after a 4-12 season, or was that a 3-13 and season? I forget what 2014 was, um, and how it would backfire. You know, I've mentioned this before, and Tommy actually um, wrote about it in a recent column. You know, there was this internal kind of poll. It was an outward poll, but the results of it were kept internally in like the 2016, 2017 timeframe, somewhere around there. Um, where part of the polling, um, you know, there were questions about the stadium and different things, but part of it was more of like an approval rating for Dan and Bruce. And like, you know, Bruce's was a six out of a hundred and Dan's was like a five out of a hundred. And I remember being told by those that were involved um, in helping to conduct that poll that there was a level of surprise that was palpable. Like they couldn't believe that they're, polling numbers were so low. You know, I used to describe that um, back then, they thought more so the fan base was just disappointed with the results. That, you know, they they recognized that Dan really wanted to win and was really trying his best to win, and just they just couldn't get it right, they, you know. But th- they didn't realize how much of the disgust was towards Dan and Bruce um, by extension. Um, but, um, that, you know, they just, the, the, when he hired Scott, it was off of that winning off the field comment. And, you know, when the, when the, you know, reaction came and that was at the end, that was December 31st, it was new year's Eve, 2014, when the reaction was so negative to Bruce's comments, they, the remedy was Bruce kind of falling on his sword to a certain degree, and hiring a general manager, and he hired Scott McLuhan. But he never really wanted to do it. I remember the interview that Tommy and I did with Bruce Allen in our studio at Redskins Park in Ashburn, right after Scott was hired. You know, and and Scott was hired literally like a week, week and a half after the winning off the field comment. And I remember asking... Um, Bruce specifically, if Scott would have final say on all personnel matters. 
And I remember looking him in the eye to see his reaction, what what, what he would say. And he got his whole body into a twist. And the answer was very hesitant um, on, you know, uh, anything other than, than than Scott would have significant input. You know, Bruce didn't want to give up the the head of the whole, you know, personnel side as the number one football decision maker. Um, Bruce couldn't even, you know, shortly after the hire admit that the GM was going to have like true GM responsibilities. Now, you know, the draft, I, I do remember him specifically singling out the draft as an area in which Scott would have, you know, the most input and final call on the picks. And I think he did in 2015. You know, one of the things he talked about with us on Friday was, you know, he got into it a little bit with Jay Gruden about Brandon Sheriff. And, you know, uh, Gruden said, you don't pick a guard at number five. And he said, who cares what he is? You know, whether he's a tackler or a guard, he's going to be easily one of your best five and one of your, one of the best players you can put on the field. And eventually Jay said yes. So I, I do think Scott had total sort of say on that 2015 draft. I'm not sure that was the case in 2016, but if it was in 2016, totally on Scott, it was a bad draft. No doubt about it. You know, it was a bad draft. Um, but I'm not sure that Bruce Allen loved not being super involved in everything. Um, and I think after 2015, maybe giving Scott some carte blanche that year, um, Maybe he, you know, wanted some of that, you know, responsibility back. And look, to be fair to Bruce and the organization, maybe things weren't super smooth with Scott after a year and a half either. Um, But that was an odd time. You know, they actually had a guy who was a legitimate talent evaluator. You know, Bruce was not that. Uh, And... You know, and it wasn't the healthiest of situations for everybody, and it was a reluctant hire. I think if he never makes the winning off the field comment, I don't know that they ever hire a GM in that offseason. But, you know, uh, Scott is a respected and has been for years a respected evaluator of college talent. That's the number one reason I love having him on the show. And number two, he's a familiar voice. To all of us, I've heard you know I've heard from people over the last few years how much they like hearing um, from him on different things. So yeah, that's why he was on. Uh, and yeah, I do, I do think that Scott's evaluation is credible. You know, of course, you can point to anybody, you know, in in a draft situation over the years and point to terrible selections. And when he said, you know, many of you pointed out, well, he said the same thing about Matt Jones. He's a football player. And by the way, somebody pointed out, he said the same thing about Matt Jones with respect to the Marshawn Lynch comp, which he gave Chris Rodriguez. But again, even the best of evaluators get it wrong more often than they get it right. Um, This came from Darren. Uh, I I, I don't, this is more of um, kind of a personal thing, but, and I know I've spoken to some of this in the past, but I, 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 I'll just read it, and then I'll respond to it. Um, Darren wrote, Kevin, big Skins fan and a big fan of yours. Thank you, Darren. Uh, I've listened to you for years from the Bay Area. I really miss my West Coast early Sunday morning walks, listening to the pregame show with you, Doc, Sonny, and Sam. You got so much good stuff out of Sonny over the years. Question, I've always wondered why a station owned by Dan Snyder could be so negative about Dan Snyder. How are you guys able to pull that off and keep your jobs? Ha ha. Uh, right, Darren. Um, first of all, I've never lived on the West Coast. I've been on the West Coast during football season. I was in Hawaii uh, for a football weekend many, many years ago. But for those of you that do listen from the West Coast, and I know many of you do. In fact, L.A. is one of our top five markets of of listeners. There's a lot of transplanted, you know, Redskin fans, uh, Washington football fans, Commanders fans in Southern California. Um, I don't know if it's still top five. It's always been one of the big top markets outside of the DMV markets. 
uh, you know, Washington, surrounding area, even Baltimore. Um, but I would have loved to have lived on the West Coast and gotten up early and had your 1 o'clock games kicking off at 10 and your 4 o'clock games kicking off at 1, you know, 115, 125. Uh, I think that's I, that's why I love the uh, the Europe games when we get football at 930 in the morning. Um, anyway, uh, so, Darren, first of all, I loved doing the pregame show. Did it for 13 years. It was big for me, you know, um, because they gave me that show pretty early on when I just, you know, ventured into radio broadcasting. And it was really, for me, it was beneficial because it was a high-profile spot. Um, so I loved it. But, but, but beyond that, I loved doing it. I did it for 13 years, I think. Um, and I loved all of those hits every Sunday or Monday or Thursday, whenever, with Doc and Sonny and Sam. I mean, they were favorites of mine as well. My conversations with Sonny Jurgensen in particular over the years were really kind of surreal for me. Uh, having been someone who remembered Sonny, not, you know, most of his career, but at the end of his career, and having, you know, uh, being a part of a fan base and being a part of a family where the debates would go back and forth, Sonny or Billy. Um, Sonny was great to me, always. Uh, I so appreciated that, and I enjoyed that so much. The, the, the conversations with Sam could go sideways at any point, uh, but that was fun too. And, of course, I've always enjoyed doing any kind of work, you know, back and forth with Doc on radio or off it. Uh, but in terms of your question, it, it's a good one, um, a, a specific to – uh, why a station owned by Dan Snyder could be so negative about Dan Snyder. How were you guys able to keep your jobs, pull that off and keep your jobs? Um, I don't really have an answer that I'm truly confident about. I think those that ran the station for many of those years were able to convince Red Zebra. Red Zebra was actually the owner of the radio station. The team actually never owned the station. That was always misrepresented. A lot of times by like the major outlets, including the Post. Uh, they never really seemed to care, to be honest with you, that they would refer to the station as team-owned uh, team owned when it actually was not uh, team-owned. Um, that was infuriating, by the way, over the years to many at the station. But we were the flagship uh, station for the team, meaning that we were the radio broadcaster, uh, the radio broadcast partner for the team. And uh, as the flagship, we would do the farming out of the broadcast to stations, you know, all over the place, you know, mostly D.C., Maryland, Virginia, Carolinas, um, Georgia. The, the, the broadcast network for Redskins games at one point was much larger than it is now. I mean, I, I don't know the number of stations, but I would bet it was 50 to 100 stations um, up and down the East Coast. But anyway, um, uh, on, on the Dan part of it, uh, being Dan Snyder was a part of Red Zebra, which was the company that owned the radio station. It was Dan Snyder as the primary and, and largest investor, but there were lots of investors and limited partners uh, in Red Zebra. Um, and I think, you know, to answer your question, I think our management always did a pretty good job of communicating that kind of the on-air content has to be honest um, and if it's not, there's just kind of a limited audience opportunity. You know, there are some fans, you know, even now, who just want the propaganda content, you know, the only positive, everything is great content. There are still some of those people today, even. But that was never, ever uh, workable for uh, long-form radio talk shows. Um, if you were on every day for three to four hours a day like we were, you know, saying what you think is the only way to do it. The rest of it gets sniffed out for what it is, which is, you know, pure propaganda. So to their credit, Red Zebra's credit, the company that owned the radio station, we were never really pushed back on in terms of criticizing the team. We weren't. Maybe if the team actually did own the station, things would have been different. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I can only say that I, I think maybe our management team did a good job of explaining to the owner of the station, Red Zebra, that, you know, if you want a pennant-waving arm of the team, that it's going to look a lot different from a business standpoint. Um, and they didn't want that. 
Uh, anyway, uh, one last uh, quick uh, tweet. Uh, this one from Eric, who writes, Kevin, did you see Luis Garcia Friday night against the Royals? Check it out. I did see it. I didn't see it. I saw it pop up on like the ESPN ticker when I saw the final score 12 to 10. And I made a note of it that Luis Garcia on Friday night in Kansas City went six for six with two RBIs and a 12 to 10 win. He raised his batting average in one game from 262 to 288. Uh, now, he went 0 for 10 over the weekend, and it's back to 272 in terms of his batting average. But, yeah, I did actually see that, and I didn't watch the game. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I did not watch the game Friday night, but I did put it in my uh, notes to mention it on the show on Monday. So thank you for uh, mentioning it, Eric, and reminding me to a certain degree. By the way, speaking of the Nats, they took 2 or 3 from the Royals over the weekend, and yesterday in a 3-2 loss, Mackenzie Gore was outstanding. He had, he had not had good outings recently, especially in his last outing. Seven innings complete, three hits, one earned run, 11 strikeouts. Relief gave the game up uh, after the Nats had built a lead. Um, that happened last week as well with Hunter Harvey, Chad Keel yesterday, but uh, a really good outing from Mackenzie Gore. And by the way, the news on their best prospect, James Wood, being elevated to A Harrisburg is certainly ish- interesting. He is on a heater right now. Last five games uh, with single-A Wilmington, three homers, seven RBIs, four walks, hitting 474 in 23 plate appearances. This is their top prospect. He came via the Juan Soto trade with the Padres, uh, and he is moving up to A ball in Harrisburg. Uh, they've got a good foundation. I know that that Mike Rizzo believes they can contend for the postseason in 2025, and there is no doubt that this team has overachieved the expectations so far. Their run differential is minus 21. There are two teams in the division that have worse run differentials than the Nats do, the Phillies and the Marlins both with worse run differentials. The Nats are seven games below 500. They are in last place, understood. Uh, But they are doing a pretty good job this year of having and fielding a very competitive team. Uh, They're out in L.A. for three games before coming back home against Philadelphia. All right, up next, a lot of Sam Howell talk with Brian Simmons, who called, called Sam Howell's games at the University of North Carolina. We'll get to that right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, jumping on with us right now is Brian Simmons. Brian is the analyst for North Carolina Tar Heel football games on their radio network and has been doing games since 2016 and saw and called all of Sam Howell's games. But Brian played in the NFL. He played at Carolina in the 90s for Mac Brown, uh, had a career in Cincinnati for uh, nine years, uh, finished up his career in New Orleans. He was a 
scout for Jacksonville uh, for a, a period of time and now has been calling games uh, in Chapel Hill for the last uh, seven years. And he joins us right now. And I had somebody reach out to me and say, Brian is excellent in as an analyst on the network, and he will be great in talking about Sam Howell's years in Chapel Hill and what he thinks Sam Howell will do at this next level. So obviously here in D.C., Brian, um, the quarterback's always a big issue, and it's been a long time since they've had, you know, a legitimate NFL starting caliber quarterback. Uh, do you think Sam Howell will be the first one for this organization in, you know, probably since Kirk Cousins? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to put a whole lot of pressure on Sam, but here's what I say about Sam. Sam is a he is a professional, right? And we understand the difference between guys that play professional football and those that are professionals. And Sam has been that way since he stepped out of high school. He's a guy that's going to take it very seriously. He has a lot of pride. Um, He's smart. He's tough. Um, So I I do think you guys, with the fifth in the fifth round, picked up a quarterback that if you put the pieces around him, as most guys, that can be a franchise quarterback for you. Hey, Brian, why do you think, you know, this has been a question that's popped up, and I want to get into what you think he does well and what you think he may need work on, but why do Mm -hmm. you think he fell to the fifth round in the 2022 draft? Yeah, Kevin, I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm sitting there at the draft and I'm and, and I still don't know the answer to that. Um the the only thing that I can think of is and, and I said this on a previous show, when I was scouting, I know, you know, we had a thought process in place that usually quarterbacks, if they if they make it out of the second round, once you start getting to the third and fourth round, then generally teams wanna pick a guy that if he's not a starter, can give you value talking about a third corner who could be your nickel, uh, a pass rush specialist, uh, you know, first and second down, uh, nose tackle, or somebody that can do other things other than just start. And we know with a quarterback, if he's not starting, he's going to be holding the clipboard. So those guys generally fail into the fourth and the fifth round. Um, and, and so, you know, we didn't necessarily know that to be factual, but just kind of the way things fail sometimes with certain quarterbacks that's generally what happened but you know sitting there sam sitting in the second round if i was if i was in charge of of drafting somebody i would have had no hesitation knowing everything that i know about the kid from a physical standpoint from a mental standpoint of taking him in the second round and would have felt really happy about it that's interesting like i'd have to go back and look at the history of the rounds, um, uh, because it doesn't pop into my head right now. I know this year Hendon Hooker went in the third round, and then I think there were some mm-hmm. fourth rounders. I know that kid Jake Hayner from Fresno went in the fourth round. But that's an interesting theory, because you're right, teams want third rounders, you know, fourth rounders even, to have a chance to contribute right away. And if you're taking a quarterback yep. in that spot, typically they're developmental in nature and they're not going to play. You can only play one quarterback at a time. Right. You can put, as you mentioned, you know, three or five or six DBs on on, a, on the field at the same time. Um, yes. All right, so you said you started off by talking about, you know, those uh, that are professional football players and those football players who are professional, essentially. What makes Sam Howell one of these, you know, pros? How how did he get along? What kind of leadership did he have? All of those things. What makes him a pro in terms of the other, you know, the intangibles beyond the physical? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the first thing is pride in his work. You know, he's a guy that has a tremendous amount of pride. Uh, he, he, he is a guy that's going to study. Uh, he cares about his performance. He cares about, you know, he takes it a huge responsibility of being the quarterback for a team, understanding that, you know, you, I coach high school football, and I used to tell my quarterbacks, like, all these kids want to play quarterback. And, and I say, you don't play quarterback. you got to be the quarterback. And it's a difference, right? Like, you know, you can go out there and play wide receiver and, you know, go out there and run. But if you're going to be the quarterback, you got to know it's a responsibility. You have the responsibility of the whole team uh, on your back. And, and there's no greater responsibilities in the National Football League than to be the head coach and to be the quarterback. And, and that is what Sam is. He's a guy that, although he's not a very vocal guy, 
He's a guy that has really good leadership skills. Uh, you know, I know in my last thing, I, I read somebody, because I was talking about his personality, and I read a comment, so I was like, well, that's concerning. And I'm like, that's personality. Personality is neither passion or, or it's, it's not the care. He he has a tremendous amount of that. He's the type of guy, you know, if, if, if you know, in the NIL world, if he got a deal, the only way he took that deal was, listen, I'll take this deal, but you got to take care of my offensive lineman too. And that's the kind of guy he is. So um, you said not the most vocal. So he's more, he's not an extroverted leader. He's not a screamer no. and a yeller. He is more no. by action. Yes, and an even kill guy, which you like. Um, but but don't confuse that with lack of passion. And I think a lot of times people get caught up in personality and passion, and the two doesn't equate. One doesn't necessarily mean the other one is in place. You have a lot of guys who are, have really big personalities and very emotional, uh, but emotion and, and, and being very big personality doesn't mean you're more passionate. Um, this guy's very passionate about football. He loves his craft. He works at it. Um, and, and listen, I saw the very first game that he played in as a college player, and they played South Carolina. And he was literally two months out of walking up from his graduation in high school. And it came down to the fourth quarter, and Carolina needed the drive to win the football game. And all Sam did was take the football down the field and score a touchdown and win the football game for him. And that's what he did for his three years there. You know, he accounted for basically 35 touchdowns every year. And his last year, you know, his weapons were gone, and he didn't throw as many. But guess what he did? He ran for 1,000 yards and, and rushed for another, like, 11 touchdowns to get him to 35. So, you know, he's a complete guy. Um, he's not a guy that you're going to do a whole lot of design run for, but he's athletic enough where he can get himself out of trouble, and you can run the ball with him just to keep defenses honest. So let's talk about his strengths, you know, um, all of the categories that make up sort of the physical for the quarterback. Uh, let's start mm-hmm. with, with arm strength. Can he make all the throws, yep. in your opinion? Absolutely. He can make every throw. He can make all the throws downfield. He can make the vertical throws. He can make all the horizontal throws that he needs to make when you talk about the NFL being from the far hash to the numbers. He can do all those things. He can throw the ball in tight windows. Um, he has tremendous touch on the deep ball. Um, and he's accurate, and he throws with anticipation. And I know some people will listen and say, hey, if, if he can do all that, why did he make it to the fifth round? I don't know why he made it to the fifth round, but, but him going in the fifth round doesn't change what he can and can't do, and he can do all those things. I had Phil Longo on the show, um, you know, after – actually, he was probably uh, at, some point, uh, at some point before the season last year. And he mm-hmm. said very quick release, too, um, and that, you know, West Coast offense actually would be the best. He said he could fit into every offense, but the quick read, quick release, get it out quickly to your playmakers mm-hmm. would be the best fit. Do you agree with, A, yep. the release, and then, B, the yep. kind of offense that would fit him best? I, I do, uh, and and the thing about Sam is, if you're open, he's gonna get you the football. Like at Carolina, it was not unusual for eight nine guys to get touches, for three or four guys to have a touchdown, or two or three guys have a touchdown, just depending on how many he threw for that game. So he can see the whole field. He doesn't get locked on. He lets coverage dictate. Um, and 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 if you're open, Sam's gonna see you. Um, and if he has to extend plays for you to get open, he can do that also. What about, you mentioned anticipation, which, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we've heard from so many coaches, Mike Shanahan in particular, always said that that is something you can coach up, but it's much better to have naturally, um, as is accuracy. So just talk a little bit more about his ability to throw people open with anticipation Mm -hmm. and his overall accuracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think both of those are are good, like really good. and listen, I think to a certain degree, you can you can get guys, you can uh, make them throw with a little more anticipation. But I think anticipation is a lot like instincts. You know, you inherently have it or you don't. And he's a quarterback that that has it, and um, and it comes because he understands the game. Like he understands coverage. Uh, he can read your pre-snap mail. Uh, he's smart enough. He's going to put the work in to understand that the parts will move after the snap. Um, and he can do all those things. And, and, you know, that's the thing that I was most impressed about Sam. I mean, he was that way from day one. Like, watching him as a freshman in college, 
you would have thought he was like a second or third year guy. Just the way he played, uh, the poise he had, he didn't get rattled. Um, you know, he was consistent. And like I say, every year he gave you like 35 touchdowns. And, uh, and, and to me, that speaks on the consistency that he plays with um, and, and, and the pride that he's played with and, and, and the passion that he has uh, for being a good player and a good leader. 35 touchdowns exactly in 2020, 30 throwing it, 5 running it in 2021, 24 throwing it, 11 rushing it. You mentioned he had over 1,000 yards rushing. You know, by st- statistically, he was 828, but in college, they count sacks as rushing yards right, for quarterbacks. Yeah. Yep. So I, I think he ended up with, with a lot more than that. Um, what do you, what, processing speed, you know, how, how does he handle the reading of defenses, pre-snap, post-snap, all of that, uh, you know, that part of the game? Yeah, in, in my opinion, in the college game, what I've seen, it, it, that was really good. Now, obviously, in, in the NFL, he's going to get some different pictures that he hasn't seen. Uh, he, he's going to get defenses that he hasn't seen. He's going to get some pre post-snap movement that he hasn't seen, but he's but as a three-year starter at the University of North Carolina, he's seen a lot of football. Uh, he's seen a lot of coverages. And at the end of the day, it comes down, if you want to be a really good quarterback in the NFL, you know, let's take away arm strain anticipation, all those physical things, right? Here's what you better be. You, you better be smart and you better be tough. And Sam has two things. He's very smart as a player uh, and he's very tough. And, uh, you know, you can have all those other things. We've seen a lot of quarterbacks in the NFL that can throw the ball the length of the field and they can do all that. But they were neither tough or either smart, and it, and it will catch up with you. It'll expose you. Yeah, I mean, look, he rushed for 146 yards in 2020, lost Javante Williams, lost uh, Michael Carter, lost receivers. The offensive line wasn't as good. He ends up rushing Mm -hmm. for, you know, over 1,000 yards to carry a team. And you know you called these games. Carolina hasn't had a good defense in years. I mean, they had to score, you know, 40 to 50-plus a game, and and he did that and kept him in it. So so there's nothing you've said right now that would make anybody question that, you know, he can't be or won't be the quarterback that they've been looking for, but there have to be Mm -hmm. some flaws. So what are they? Yeah, so for me, especially his last year, here's the thing that stuck out with me the most. When Sam was inside the pocket, Sam made very good decisions. He was decisive with the football. When Sam broke the pocket to try to extend plays, which he can do, Sometimes that's where his bad decision-making came. Sometimes Sam tried to make something out of nothing, and sometimes he has to realize the best play is just get away with no harm done, throw the ball out, run the ball, get down, whatever it may be, but you can't force the ball into coverage. You try to force the ball downfield to make the play when it's not one to be made. And, and to me, his senior year, especially when he was trying to force things. Now, sometimes the scoreboard dictated, because as you talked about, you know, there was a lot of pressure on that offense to have to score most of the time when they went out there on the field. And, you know, I think sometimes he tried to do too much in certain situations, and it and it bit him. Um, lots of RPO uh, at Carolina when he was there. And Eric Bieniemy's Kansas City Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes, you know, top five, top six in RPO percentage. Of their mm-hmm. offensive snaps, yeah. uh, where how do you see the fit with Eric Bieniemy? The, the fit will be good. I mean, because one, I know I know Eb. You know, we were teammates in Cincinnati, and I know you know I know what kind of ship he run. Eb is a straightforward dude. He's gonna shoot it to you straight. Uh, he's gonna be honest with you, and Sam can handle that, and that'll be good for Sam. I think their personalities will match up really good because Sam is even kill. Eb can get emotional. And, uh, you know, I think those two will match up really good. But Sam will be Sam will be a grown man. Like, Sam will be able to sit there and look him in the face and, 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 and receive all the information and not get emotional about how it comes to him. Thick skin you're talking about. Because you need it with yeah. Eric Bieniemy, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I just think you need – like, Eric is – you know, Eric is what made Eric a good player as a uh, a guy that was a little small in, in statue. Yeah. <laughs> his, his toughness, you know, both physically and mentally, and I think he coaches that way. Um, so I, I don't know – I don't necessarily know if you have to be thick-skinned. I just think you have to be able to 
you know, be able to receive the message and not get caught up in the volume of it or, or you know, the body language and all that stuff. Um, but here's what I know. Like, if you ask guys that play for EB, they, they respect them. Um, they like them because what they know is he's going to tell them the truth. And as a player, that's all you want. You want a coach to tell you the truth, and you want a guy that you feel like can make you better as a football player. And I think EB has a history of doing those two things. How many players do you really think want to be told the truth? You played. There are players yeah. that would rather not be told the truth, right, and have it easier. The, uh, yeah, well, the ones that don't want to be good players, right. that's, that's, you know, that's what they want. But the guys that want to be really good football players, they want, they want you to tell them the truth. Now, listen, they don't want to be disrespected. Like, they don't want to be demeaned and, and all that kind of stuff. But they want to be told the truth because once they realize the coach is not truthful with them, they tune out the message. You cannot coach a guy if he doesn't trust you. And so that's the number one thing players want. Players want to be told the truth. All right. If I told you a year from now off of the 2023 season that mm-hmm. um, he excelled uh, and that there's a chance, like we, we, we watched it and we all believe that there's a chance he's the guy, what do you think we saw with the team around him during the season to make us believe that? Um, that's a, that's a kind of difficult question. Um, well, just like what kind of, what kind of year do you think he had? Do you think he did it with his mobility? Do you think he did it with his arm? They've got some pretty good skill position players on this team. No, I I definitely think he's going to do it with his arm. You know, like he's, he's a guy that can escape the pocket. He's a guy that can get you a first down. But is he necessarily going to beat you with his legs like the Lamar Jackson? I mean, obviously that's an extreme comparison. But, um, you know, is he that kind of guy? No. But is, is he a guy that's athletic enough that can, can get you out of trouble in the pocket? Uh, you know, if it's third and seven, can he break the pocket? If you're running man defense and, 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 and get you 10, he can do all those things. But what he does the best is throw the football. He understands coverage. He, under, he understands throwing the ball with anticipation and he could throw the ball accurate. So, you know, with him, the number one thing will be, you know, not trying to force the issue and keeping the turnovers down. If he can do that, I think you'll be really happy with the year he's had for you, and then you will be able to say, okay, here's what I hope. I hope they have enough pieces around, Sam, where you can legitimately judge him, and I think that's the fault that most organizations do. They don't have the pieces in place, say offensive line, say weapons down the field, to accurately judge a quarterback, and then the quarterback becomes the bearer of everything that's negative that goes on with the offense. I think you answered the flip side to that question, which is if we get to the end of next season and we're not sure, you know, or worse than that, you know, we are sure, and he's not a guy, it's because of the decision-making and the forcing of plays that aren't there. Yes. And, and which I don't, I don't see that. I don't think that's going to be an issue. Um, I think Eric will coach that, and I think Sam's understand that. And, and like I say, most of that in college, like his senior or junior year, it was for whatever reason. It was once he broke the pocket and he was trying to extend plays. And here's what he, here's what he will find out really quickly in the NFL if he doesn't. The time that he had when he broke the pocket in college, that amount of time ain't going to be there next year. So he'll he'll understand that. And his decision-making, whether it's to throw the ball out of bounds, whether it's to get one or two yards and get down, that decision will be made pretty quickly for him. All right, one more. This is great, by the way, and I really appreciate it. So tell everybody what a team next year very early in the draft will be getting in Drake May. Oof, man, they're going to get a guy who's 6'5", about 225 pounds, faster than what you think, more athletic than what you think, Tough. He, I mean, very similar to the things that I'm saying about Sam. You, you can you can put that with Drake May. He has tremendous touch on the deep ball. Uh, he's accurate. Um, the, the really the main difference is he's a he's a little more athletic than Sam is. Believe it or not, at six five two thirty, uh, he's a more natural runner than Sam is. Interesting. Uh, and and but the, but the kid man, he he is just like Sam. He's been He's been a veteran, a collegiate veteran from the first time he stepped on the field. And, and and a lot like Sam, a lot of times when he went out there and when he touches the field, he got to score. You know, that pressure has been on him where he feels like he has to score. And he's handled that. And 
does. Like he, you know, he to me he's a more athletic version of Sam Howell with prototypical quarterback size. Coach Brian Simmons with us. Uh, he's a he's a coach, a high school football coach. He's part of the North Carolina broadcast team, analyst since 2016. He played in the NFL for 10 years. He was a scout. You can follow him on Twitter at Coach B Sims. Uh, that was great. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you, Kevin, for having me on. I appreciate you. Let's finish up the show with some NBA Game 7 tonight in Boston. We'll get to that right after these words from a few of our sponsors. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't think he got that in in time. Great effort by Derek White. And didn't I say you have? Oh, they're saying on the floor they're counting it. You have to protect the offensive rebound. Oh, he got Long rid of it. Time. He That's sure a Celtic and win. And we're going the to game seven. The Celtics are going to win. There's a game seven back in Boston. Ruling on the floor is good basket. The play's under review. What a finish to this game. One of the wildest finishes, one of the wildest games uh, I can remember in recent memory in the NBA playoffs, certainly in a big spot like this one, uh, a team on the verge of being eliminated from the Eastern Conference Finals, the other team on the verge of advancing to the NBA Finals. But Derek White's putback just barely beating the buzzer uh, on Marcus Smart's missed shot. Uh, and keeping the Celtics alive for a Game 7 tonight was an incredible finish to a game that just had so much to it. Uh, I'll start with this, just kind of looking at the stars uh, on both teams in Game 6. Jason Tatum was unbelievable in the first half. You know, 25 points in the first half, uh, just unguardable. Uh, when they did guard him, they had to foul him, putting him at the line where he was incredible from the free throw line, 11 for 11 in the first half. And then in the second half, he was missing in action. Uh, had just six points in the second half. I thought Marcus Smart was outstanding during the game, and I thought Jalen Brown had you know incredible moments uh, in the game as well. And then you flip it to Miami's stars. Bam and Jimmy. And both of those guys played about as poorly as they have played the entire postseason. Jimmy Butler's performance for three and four-fifths of the game, three-quarters and four-fifths of the fourth quarter, was head-scratching. I mean, I thought he was sick. I thought he was hurt. 
he didn't want the ball. He was deferential. I know he had I know he had a significant number of shot attempts, but the number of times he deferred or didn't want the ball at all was alarming considering that this really felt like it was Miami's seventh game as as much as it was Boston's seventh game. It felt like must win for Miami and it was must win for Boston. And Jimmy Butler, who's been one of the stars of not only this postseason, but postseasons in recent years, was at one point three for 19 from the floor. And people were pointing out, well, he's rebounding and he's making the right passes. No. I mean, he was doing those things, but he was avoiding his responsibility in the game, which was... They were losing the game, and he wasn't scoring. And then out of nowhere, and it wasn't like it was dominance down the stretch from Butler, because it wasn't. He got to the free throw line. He got aggressive, and he took the responsibility back of being the guy that needed to lead their comeback. They were down 98-88 to with just over four minutes to go. And he got to the free throw line a bunch, and he scored most of their points down the stretch, and he got fouled shooting a three-pointer with what I thought was like 2.2 seconds left. They ended up putting three seconds back on the clock. Look, the NBA reviewed the final two minutes, and just so you know, they said no double dribble, that that was a natural loss of the ball, and so it wasn't double dribble by, by Butler. And they said that the initial contact on him going up for the shot did happen with three seconds to go. Didn't seem that way to me in going you know, frame by frame on the replay. Um, but they put nine-tenths of a second back on the clock, which was all the difference in the world on Boston's final, um, final possession. But, man, Bam and Jimmy for the game, nine for 37. Nine for 37 in the game. And still they were up 103 to 102 with three seconds to go. Boston got incredibly stagnant. Man, it is painful to watch them um, at their worst because them at their best, they're just much better than anybody, than, than the Heat, of course. And I don't think they're better than Denver, personally, but they're just a much more talented and a better team than Miami when they are at their best. But when they are at their worst, like with a 10-point lead going completely stagnant, doing nothing but shooting, you know, they jacked up a lot of threes in this game, and they shot 20%. They were 7 of 35. Um, but there were calls in the fourth quarter. The final two-minute report indicated that there were a couple of calls that went Miami's way. Like there was a lane violation on a missed free throw that was missed, but no. If you were watching that game, there were Jason Tatum. Uh, they they called a Bam for a foul on Tatum. That was a terrible call. There was no contact. There was an out of bounds play that should have clearly gone to Miami. That went to Boston. It really did feel like you know the NBA conspiracy conspiracy theorists had a case to be made that the NBA wants Boston in the finals against Denver. But, you know, for the most part, I'm not going to sit here and say that the officiating cost Miami the game at all. Um, I, I, and, and, in fact, you know, in the games where I thought Boston was going to be kept in, the, kept in the series when they were down 3 nothing to try to extend the series, I didn't think that they got the benefit of the whistle at all. Miami lost the game on Saturday night because their two stars – for much, uh, well, in the case of Butler, for th- three and four fifths quarters, he was dreadful. And I, I hate saying that he's he's one of my favorite players to watch in the postseason. It was alarming how reluctant he was until the very end. And man, were those three clutch free throws! Like with the way he had been shooting the ball, I did think there was a chance he was going to miss one of those. He made all three. And then, you know, they, they they did such a good job of denying Tatum the ball. They gave up, you know, uh, the inbounder, Derek White, uh, you know, Struess did a lane to a putback. And, you know, I, I saw a lot of people saying the ball had to miss just the right way if it was a long rebound or if it came off the other side. Look at some of the angles of Jason Tatum rushing the rim. 
if the ball came off not in White's direction but off kind of the center portion, Tatum would have been there to tip it in. So there was some boxing out issues for Miami um, for sure. Um, By the way, Marcus Smart was outstanding in the game, and that final shot almost went down. And uh, several people said, are you going to criticize Joe Missoula? They went to Smart. They weren't trying to go to Smart there. They didn't have any timeouts left. That was the last option. He was initially a screener on the play for Tatum. Um, But anyway, uh, we get game seven tonight. And I'm not counting Miami out. I'm not going to – I don't like this game. I actually thought the line would go higher. It's come down. There's some sharp money on Miami for sure. Um, I – on one hand – I just feel like Boston will be at their best enough of the game to not lose it at home. But at the same time, can Jimmy Butler and Bam, you know, uh, Adebayo play any worse than they did and they were within one-tenth of a second of advancing to the NBA Finals? Um, Are they really going to be that bad again tonight? I don't know. Um, I can't wait to watch it, though. Can't wait to watch it. I am going to be rooting for Miami. I just don't love this particular Celtics team, although I will agree with those of you who believe Jason Tatum is just an outrageous talent and a true superstar, and I do see it that way at times. And then the second half the other night, I didn't see it. I just don't know how much of that is. Look, he had 50, what was it, 53 against the Sixers in Game 7? I don't know. It's going to be... I guess if you forced me, I would say the Celtics are going to win this game. I'll just go with the team that's actually the better overall talented team in their in their own building, and that place will be lit tonight. And then we get game one of the finals on Thursday night. But game six was epic, man, epic. I mean, the Celtics have had so many of those games over the years in the postseason, but that is a memorable um, uh, finish for the Boston Celtics, even for a Boston Celtics fan. One-tenth of a second away from being eliminated from the postseason, and they get the Derek White tip, and he's been outstanding, too, for them. He really has. Uh, anyway, all right, that is it for today's show. Back tomorrow with Tommy.